Lord in heaven, we do love you because you have first loved us. Tonight we desire to hear from you that we might learn to rejoice in you and to love you better. Send your spirit, we pray. Give us ears to hear. We long to know Jesus better in faith. And so we ask that you would be with us tonight, enabling us to hear him speak, that we might go and do his will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may once again turn to Romans chapter 5, which is on page 942 of the Pew Bible. Tonight is the conclusion of our series of studies in this section of Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and it's my uh, final part in this series of studies as well, at least, at least for now in Romans. Dr. Ferguson will be returning this week and resuming his place here on Sunday nights. Well, let us read together, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Young mother took her children to the park, one summer afternoon for a little break she recalled hearing a car drive up quickly and screech to a halt as she was watching her children play on the playground and a young attractive woman jumped out of the car with smile on her face and almost seemed to hover across the park to a bench where she sat down and the mother began to wonder what might she be up to? What are her plans? Is she meeting a boyfriend or a fiancé? Is she excited about meeting her husband who has been so busy with work? He's finally taken time to spend with her. And she thought, I'll keep track of this young woman and see who shows up. Of course, as a young mother would, she became distracted by her children who were playing on the playground and soon forgot about the other young lady. A little while later, she looked over there, and no one had arrived. And here's this young, attractive woman with a smile on her face, simply reading her Bible. She had come there on a date with the Lord to simply be there with Christ and reading the Word. And she began to think to herself, because she was a Christian as well, and she realized she had lost a sense of that spiritual fervor that Paul speaks of, 
that zeal, that sense of rejoicing in the Lord, of the joy of just being in the presence of God. And sometimes we as Christians know that sense as well, that we've lost, even as Pastor Matthias spoke of earlier tonight, the joy of a newfound faith in the Lord Jesus. Christianity had become a duty for her rather than a joy. Paul tells us later on in Romans, in chapter 12, he gives commands to the church and he says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. That is to be the disposition of the church that we do not lose our spiritual zeal and fervor, but we have so much joy in the Lord that it just seems to bubble out of us. Now, there are a lot of things that can sap our joy in life, but I want to say, and I think this is clear from the context of Paul's writing on justification in this particular chapter, that the greatest thing that saps the joy of the Christian is lack of of faith in Christ. Lack of faith in Christ. Here, Paul, in this glorious passage in Romans, bookends his discussion of the benefits of justification by faith by speaking of the joy that we are to have as Christians. In verse 2, he says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And now in the text that we have before us tonight, verse 11, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This should be the disposition of the Christian. And if we were to catalog all the blessings and benefits that Paul mentions here in this particular passage of Romans chapter 5, it's no wonder that he speaks of rejoicing. Of the fact that we are justified sinners. That we have been reconciled to God. That His wrath has been extinguished upon Christ. That we are now at peace with God. And more than that, we have the hope of the glory to come. The glory of God, he says. The very glory of God that God Himself will share with His church as He welcomes us into His glorious kingdom. And if you own these precious blessings by faith in Christ, then the natural or the logical response is to exult in God. It's to rejoice. It's to bow down in great joy before our Savior. That's why He brings this glorious passage to a conclusion by speaking of rejoicing in God. Now the ESV, which is your Pew Bible translation in verse 11, says more than that. And it sounds as though the, it's the logic that Paul used last week in verses 9 and 10 and 15 and 17 where he was saying, if one thing is true, how much more will another thing be true? But that's not exactly what he is saying here. What it says is, not only so, but we also rejoice. In other words, not only is Paul's logic true and sound that we're justified, that we're now reconciled to God, 
not only that, but the logic of the gospel leads us to rejoicing. It leads us to exult in God. And Paul knew all too well the experience of rejoicing in the gospel. And that the gospel ought to lead the Christian to joy. You may recall this passage from 1 Timothy, where Paul writes to Timothy and he speaks of his own apostleship. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But he says, I received mercy. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The, th- the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And when, it's, when Paul juxtaposes the, the horror of his persecution of the church, the corruption of his own sin with the glory of the gospel that he ends this passage in worship saying in this great doxology to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Here is the persecutor of the church, the one who had nothing but hatred for Jesus who is now filled with joy, rejoicing in Christ. And you can almost see the demeanor of Paul change on the pages of the book of Acts. And even as you read his letters throughout the New Testament, once he is converted, it's as though the the harshness of his heart, of his hatred for Jesus and all those who belong to Jesus, just melted away. And in its place... Joy, everlasting joy in Christ. Joy that even far surpassed any of his awful, awful circumstances that Christ would lead him into. And the question for us tonight is what do we learn about the joy that flows from this great gospel of peace? Well, the first thing is this our rejoicing results from appropriating the truth. Our rejoicing results from appropriating the truth. You may recall at the beginning of our studies in the book of Romans, Dr. Ferguson spoke of how Paul says we, uh, or Paul uses this language of my gospel. And he said over the course of these many months that we would come to a greater understanding of what Paul would mean by speaking of my gospel. He does this in chapter 16, very end, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now, Paul can speak of the gospel as his gospel for two reasons. One, because he is an apostle appointed by Christ to be a witness of Christ. One who could declare authoritatively the word of God on behalf of Christ. The gospel of Christ. But not only that, as we've already seen in the way he writes to Timothy, he can speak of my gospel 
Because he's owned it for himself. That he's grabbed a hold of Jesus by faith. And he's so appropriated the truth of the gospel that he can say it's, it's my gospel because Jesus is now mine because I am his. And so he says, if you want to rejoice, if you want to have joy and spiritual fervor, then you need to appropriate the truth of the gospel. The truth of God's word is, is living and active in every Christian. Because in every Christian, the living word is active. Knowledge of salvation in Christ for us is the source of our joy because we know that Jesus is the source of all of our blessings. As we begin to contemplate all that Christ gave to us, we contemplate the condition of our souls before we became Christians. As we contemplate the, the wrath and eternal punishment from which we have escaped because Jesus has gone into the fire and experienced the, the fires of hell for us. So we contemplate the goodness and mercies of God. So we contemplate what it means to now be reconciled to God. So we contemplate what it means to stand before the Father as righteous as His own Son by faith in Jesus. So we contemplate what it means to be adopted into the family of God, to no longer be spiritual orphans. So we contemplate the eternal weight of glory that is awaiting us in Christ Jesus. As those things become real in our hearts and minds, and these things simply evoke praise in the believer so that we want to give ourselves holy to Christ because we've experienced the unending love and affection of Jesus. Is this not part of what corporate worship is about? We, we come together as the body of Christ and we, we hear from Jesus the glorious riches that He has for us so that again and again we can contemplate in our minds all that we have by faith in Jesus that we ought to leave with joy-filled hearts. If we were to go back to Romans chapter 16, that's what Paul says. To him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. In the preaching of Christ, there is joy because it's where the truth of the gospel is found. And we are filled with joy when the truth begins to have its way with us. And we let it begin to fill every cavern of our heart so that every part of us is so filled with Christ that all we can do is rejoice. But one, as one of my seminary professors would say, failure to appropriate the truth will lead the church to covenant infidelity. Failure to appropriate the truth, to own it for yourself, to truly trust by faith in Jesus and all that He promises to you will lead to covenant infidelity. And along the way to covenant infidelity is simply being robbed of the joy of Christ. See, when you're robbed of the joy of Christ, 
you no longer want to serve him. And so what are some ways that we fail to appropriate the truth? Let me mention two. One is an unwillingness to glory in Christ. And we might speak of this in three different parts. One is those people who are self-righteous, who are trusting in themselves for their standing before God. And what does this look like? Well, it looks like what Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Do not do your righteous acts before men to be praised by them, because if you do, you've received your reward in full, and there's nothing left for you. Those who are self-righteous, he says, sound the trumpet when they give to the needy. They stand up in the public square. They pray in public to be praised by men. And you see, it's not until we actually give up on ourselves. When you give up on yourself, then you're free to worship Jesus. Because there's nothing else in the place of Jesus. Remember what Jesus would go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If Christ is not your treasure, your heart will not be with him. Another part of this unwillingness to glory in Christ is is self-pity. We've spoken of this before. It's this sense of, of morbid introspection where we look at ourselves and we say, I am not worthy of the grace of God. And let me just say, that's about the most arrogant statement anyone could make. To look at the cross of Jesus and deny that what Jesus has accomplished has saving power for you, that there's somehow something unique about you that says I'm far beyond the saving power of Jesus is to deny that He is sovereign over salvation. Finally, not only self-righteousness and self-pity, but sentimentality. This is the mindset that says that truth is not really important. It's not vital. What I want is spiritual experience. My feelings dominate me, and in that kind of setting, joy can be fleeting. Because what God becomes for you is this great shaman in the sky who is there to give you religious spiritual high, a spiritual experience. And when that's the case, and you're not grounded in the truth, sooner or later, your spiritual experience is not enough. And so one way that we fail to appropriate the truth is an unwillingness to glory in Christ. Another way is this, unwillingness to meditate upon the truth. An unwillingness to meditate upon the truth. You may remember from Paul's example in his letters of how often he moves from the indicative to the imperative, of how he reasons logically according to the truth, and then based on that truth says, now here's how you ought to live as a Christian. He's working out not only the truth, but the implications of that truth in life. And so often, we are unwilling to work out the implications of the truth in our life. We become so busy. We become so preoccupied with the own busyness of life 
that we don't give ourselves any time to meditate upon the truth and begin to look at our circumstances through the lens of Scripture and begin to appropriate the truth to those particular situations. And when that is the case, we're living from unbelief rather than faith in the truth. And unbelief in the truth is oftentimes what makes us miserable as Christians. Because what is in the place of truth is a lie. And lies sidetrack any kind of joy that we can have in Christ. Not only that, but it simply robs God of His glory. Now let me say, it's just an aside on this notion of an unwillingness to meditate upon the truth. Sometimes what we do in, in the church is simply settle for spiritual entertainment. Now, what I want to say is this is true in the contemporary church. As people go to services simply for the music or whatever it might be, but let us not forget it can be just as true in a traditional worship service too. And especially those of us who are connoisseurs of fine preaching. We can become such connoisseurs of fine preaching that what we do is we go and we consume, but we never actually give ourselves to the work of meditating upon the truth and appropriating that truth for ourselves so that we go out into the world to serve Christ with great joy in our hearts. You see, you can be a consumer-driven church looking for spiritual experience. You can just as easily be a consumer-driven church looking for great preaching so that you can be well-fed but never actually do anything with the spiritual food that you've been given. And that, my friends, is not the church that Jesus delights in. And it's not the joy-filled church that Jesus is trying to build either. And so at times we fail to appropriate the truth, but Jesus declares, Jesus declares, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The truth of who God is. The truth of who you are. The truth of the gospel of grace. Of what it means to be saved and redeemed by Jesus so that we no longer follow the lies of the enemy. So that we're now free from those lies and we're free from the corruption and the idolatry of our own hearts. Because what the gospel produces is humble sinners. Humble sinners. Humility in the sinner and joy in the saved. Humility in the sinner and joy in the saved. You've probably heard Dr. Ferguson before speak of, of joyful solemnity and solemn joy. And that ought to be the disposition of every Christian. We're solemn because... We worship a holy God and we live in a fallen world and we wrestle against sin. And yet joyful because we have a great conquering king who has already won the victory for us. Let me just say, appropriating the truth, it is the only thing that will make your soul sing with joy. And the extent 
of our joy in God reveals the extent to which we grasp and trust salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. So our joy is about rejoicing in the the truth, appropriating the truth for us. But secondly, our joy, our rejoicing is in God through Christ. Now, I want to say just for a moment here, notice that Paul changes the object of worship in this passage, the object of joy. He says in verse 2 that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our rejoicing is in the glory that is to come. Secondly, he says in verse 3 that we rejoice in our sufferings. But when he gets to the end of his uh, passage here on justification by faith, what he says is in verse 11, we also rejoice in God. Our joy is in God, he says. And this word for rejoicing is simply to glory or to boast. We glory in God because of who he is and what he's accomplished. Now back in Romans chapter 2 and verse 17, we read of a very parallel passage to this when he says, speaking of the Jews, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast, glory, rejoice in God. Now he's condemning them because they're boasting, they're glorying in God is out of the sense of entitlement to God, that there's something about their own heritage as children of Abraham that gives them a claim to God that nobody else can have. What Paul is speaking of here in Romans chapter 5 is something quite different than boasting in their heritage, but rather we find the humbled sinner, the beggar who receives grace from God. In fact, he receives far more than he can ever ask or imagine because now his hope is in Christ. And so he says here that our rejoicing is in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our rejoicing in God is always through Christ. He is the mediator of the covenant. And woven all through this passage in Romans chapter 5, is the fact that only by faith in Jesus are we justified before God and reconciled to God. Jesus is the means by which these things are accomplished. Now, everybody worships something in life. And those who desire to worship God desire to have a clean conscience before God. Because when your conscience is not clean... You fear coming in the presence of God because you feel a sense of unworthiness. Not only so, but your desire for serving God withers and is sapped of its energy because you know that there's some sense of guilt hanging over you and that God's wrath may not be satisfied. And you long for your conscience to be clean and to be able to rejoice in God through Jesus Christ means that your conscience has to be cleaned by Jesus. And that's the very thing that the writer of Hebrews tells us. If we were to turn to chapter 9 of of Hebrews, what we find is 
the writer speaking of the worship in the temple, and he says, according to this arrangement, the worship in the temple, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, they would offer sacrifices, but it had no spiritual power to actually cleanse your conscience, to perfect and purify the conscience of the worshiper. But he goes on to say in verse 13, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your consciences from dead works? My friends, only Jesus can purify your conscience and remove from you any sense of guilt that you have over sin because only He can deal with sin finally on the cross. If you want to rejoice in God through Jesus, then you do so as one whose conscience has now been cleansed and purified. See, our our exaltation in God can never be divorced from a consciousness consciousness that's purified of its sin. You see, security is the only thing that leads to joy. If you're not secure in Christ, you have no joy. But the more you grow in grace and rest more in Jesus, the more secure you are in His Word. And the greater joy begins to grow in you so that you almost can't contain yourself. Oh, who is like the Lord our God? Who is like Him? Who can save like that? It's that kind of joy that can say with the psalmist, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. See, this person who's experienced the grace of the gospel in Christ Jesus can't hardly contain themselves. Just like David and many of the saints of old who went into the temple of God and gave themselves their whole heart, soul, mind, strength, and body to the worship of God. We see David dancing before the Lord and the saints raising their hands in worship to God. The Hebrews were a passionate people. And they desired to give themselves completely in joyful worship to God. A couple of weeks ago, Duff James and I went out to lunch with a friend from seminary who was in town. And he told us of his senior minister. He's an associate pastor at a large, traditional Presbyterian church. He told us of how his senior pastor on one Sunday invited the congregation to raise their hands as they joined together in prayer. Now, you can almost imagine in a church like ours, if we were all invited to raise our hands as we joined together in prayer. No doubt there might be a little bit of murmuring. Did he really say that? Did I hear him wrong? There might be those people in the congregation who are a little bit excited but feel naughty at the same time and maybe halfway raise their hands. 
And then there are others who might throw their hands up and inside they're screaming, Yes! Let us praise the Lord. Now, Dr. Ferguson is returning this week, and so please, no emails to him this coming week saying that Pastor Lucas has gone off his rocker and is telling us to become charismatics in our worship. But in a way, let me just say that it's a shame that the minister is the only one authorized to raise his hands as we pray to our great king. Is that not a shame? Now, I'm not saying we ought to all do this, but what I am saying is that when, when the gospel gets a hold of us, when Christ gets a hold of our soul, though we may not raise our hands physically, but when the joy of having our burden of sin taken away, then we want to give everything to Jesus. Our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and even our bodies. That everything would be given to Christ. That, that there would be no restraints placed upon us. Nothing of the, the, the cultural conservatism would hold us back from worshiping our God. Isn't that the sum of the Christian life? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever and ever. So our rejoicing is in God through Jesus Christ. But finally, we'll close with this. Our rejoicing transforms our hearts and lives. Paul speaks of Christ as the, as the means by which we have now received reconciliation. More than that, we, rejoice, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now remember back in Romans chapter 1 where Paul speaks of the, of the wrath of God coming down upon all the ungodly in this world who have exchanged the truth of God and the glory of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You recall that and here what he's speaking of is this sense of false worship that we're giving ourselves to a false god by worshiping something in the creation. And now what he says is you've been reconciled. Now your orientation is no longer towards the creation. It's no longer downward, but it's upward towards the creator who has reconciled you to himself. And the more you give yourself to him in joyful praise, the more he begins to let loose of the grip that we have upon all the things that we worship in creation because now we glory in Christ the Hebrew word for glory is simply weighty weightiness some crude illustration but think of a think of a bowling ball and you drop it into the center of of a waterbed, and everything begins to pull inward. And if you were to drop other objects onto the waterbed, what would they do? They would move towards the weightiest object. And in a sense, that's the picture that we have with this word of glory, the weightiness of Jesus. He becomes the most glorious, weightiest object in your life, and everything in your life all of a sudden is reoriented towards Him so that now you want to serve Him with great joy 
because of what he's accomplished for you. Remember I said earlier, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christ, your great treasure. Because when you glory in him, all the other false gods of life begin to fall away. And wholesale rejoicing in God through Christ means there's no leftover spiritual energy for anything else in the creation because you're giving it all to Jesus. It's all directed towards Him. Joyful worship, rejoicing in God, purifies the soul of the sinner. And we may often wonder why we see such little growth in our own sanctification of growing by faith in the character of Jesus. So oftentimes it's because we're not giving ourselves wholly to joyful worship in Christ. Now you recall that woman that I spoke of at the beginning of our time tonight. I'm sure that many of us have felt just the same way that she felt. And some of us have gone through dark times in life, times of great hardship and even spiritual depression. And at times we can even lose hope that we'll ever regain our spiritual fervor and strength and joy in the Lord. Let me tell you this. There's more joy in God than there is sorrow in the world. Because Christ your King has paid it all. What joy there is in knowing God. And sometimes by faith we need to press through the hardships and heartache And we need to discover all over again the great blessings of the gospel and the great treasure that is Christ Jesus. Remember the kingdom parables in Matthew 13? When he spoke of that hidden treasure and when someone finds it, what does he do? He goes and sells everything he has and he buys that field for the pearl of great price. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Sell everything that you have. You might have joy unending in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is ours and we are his. And in him we have an everlasting joy, one that will never fade. We almost can't contemplate what it means to have joy in the Lord so full and rich as the joy in the Trinity the rejoicing that goes on between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And yet that is ours in Christ. And we long for that day when we will see you face to face and our joy will be complete. Until then, bless us with the truth of the gospel, with faith, abiding faith in Jesus, that we might be fully devoted to him, purified of everything in our hearts that is not given to him that we might live a life of joy and rejoicing in Christ Jesus. This we pray for his sake. Amen.